Wing Commander John Stubbington is going to talk about um, air intelligence and politics within Whitehall during um, the Second World War. John graduated from the RAF Technical College as an engineer officer, going on to specialise in electronic warfare and defence intelligence. During his RAF career, he was involved with the Electronic Warfare Support Unit, Number 51 Squadron, and the uh, Royal Signals and Intelligence Units within the MOD Directorate of Scientific and Technical Intelligence. And he also had a posting doing similar work at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. After retiring from the RAF, he spent 20 years in the UK defence industry. He's written two books, one on the air section of Bletchley Park and another recent one on Kept in the Dark. And he has a few copies here for those interested in that second book. Um, this evening promises to be a really interesting, as all our talks are, because the bomb, strategic bombing campaign is a highly controversial topic. And I think John is going to throw a somewhat different light on it to what sometimes comes out in the controversy. And uh, we're looking forward very much, John. May I invite you to give your lecture? May I start by thanking the Society for inviting me here. You may possibly invite me to leave later. <laughs> but may I also thank the members of the audience, a good many of whom I have to say that I know and some very well. And it is interesting to see so much informed opinion in the audience. I think we may have reasonable banter afterwards. The subject is probably contentious. A number of publications have been written, both officially and unofficially, and I think it may be fair to say that there is no single point of view. There is certainly a dominant point of view, and it's that dominant point of view which I propose to challenge I'm speaking basically from the point of view of the application of intelligence to the strategic bombing offensive. The screen has some challenging questions. They are fundamental to the proper use of intelligence. They are sometimes overlooked by players who are responsible for appreciation but who do not have the subsequent burden of implementation and I'm not talking about conspiracy theory. That's a quite different issue. It's a timeless problem. The current Chilcot inquiry is trying to unravel similar questions within the context of the Second Gulf War in 2003 and possible weapons of mass destruction. But that inquiry has absolutely no monopoly of the basic problem which embraces many issues such as politics, bureaucracy, personalities and jealousies. 
the use, the abuse and misuse of intelligence within the context of the combined bombing offensive has the same hallmarks. My book, incidentally, was published before the Chilcot Inquiry opened, so I'm not drawing from that, but I shall refer obliquely to it. Intelligence is a multifaceted creature. No single source should be expected to provide all the answers. Even Enigma did not provide all the answers. We never intercepted all the signals, and we certainly never interpreted all the signals that we were inter that were intercepted. We certainly did not always make best use of that intelligence. But that, I believe, not least from my own experience, is likely to remain an inherent element of the intelligence process. A major example was perhaps the failure to appreciate the German preparations for the Ardennes offensive in December 1944. The evidence was there but it did not fit the Allied predisposition. There was a most intriguing paper written by no less than C, in which he identified the evidence that was there beforehand. There are four dominant and interrelated topics. Signals intelligence, of which Enigma was just one element, ministries and commands were handicapped by the lack of appropriate organizations and skills for interpreting and handling this intelligence. There was a culpable failure in some departments within Whitehall, even within the Air Ministry, to understand and appreciate the operational capabilities and limitations of the strategic bomber force. Many people thought, many still think, that precision bombing just hit the target and that area bombing just killed civilians. How wrong can you be? Parochial and personal attitudes within some major Whitehall departments. There were conflicts of policy, opinion and personality that collectively diverted or obstructed the selection of strategic targets and the high-level planning of the bombing offensives. And there was a lack of cooperation between some government and military departments that blocked the exchange of vital intelligence and prevented bomber commands seeing important material relating to target selection and damage assessment. Those failures and omissions, many of which were born during the 1930s, contributed to the lengthening of the war and the consequential loss of Allied bomber air crews and German civilians on the ground. In my opinion, they are an indictment of some people who occupied high office in Whitehall and Washington at that time. There were three key intelligence requirements for the combined bombing offensive, as I show on the slide. Reliable political and economic intelligence. Reliable operational intelligence, and reliable target intelligence. The word throughout is reliable. The emergence of signals intelligence as a recognized 
and accepted major source of intelligence took many years and demanded the breaking down of many old-style preconceptions and traditions. Sometimes that culture adapted more easily, notably within the Admiralty. But in some cases it was unyielding and gave rise to serious conflicts relating to the appreciation and dissemination of signals intelligence between the ministries and field commanders. The Home Air Command suffered seriously in this respect. The general failure to read or make intelligent appreciation of the material early in the war was reflected in an observation by no less than Commander-in-Chief Home Fleet, who said that it is most galling that the enemy should know just where our ships always are, whereas we generally learn where his forces are when they sink one or more of our ships. The German Navy had been reading British naval ciphers for several years, to a limited extent. But I take the opportunity not to overlook the extent to which the German and the Italian intelligence had penetrated and exploited our own and other allied nations' organizations, especially diplomatic traffic, which could in some cases be regarded as an open book. If the security leaks via Cicero from the British ambassador in Ankara during the war were bad, they were almost trivial in comparison with the breaches from the Chancery in Rome for at least five years before the start of the war. The British embassy there was a sieve through which diplomatic secrets filtered to Mussolini and Hitler. In conversation with the Italian foreign minister, Count Ciano, in October 1936, Hitler said, According to the English, there are two countries which are now led by adventurers, Germany and Italy. England was led by adventurers when she built the empire. Today she's governed by incompetence. What a commentary on the naivety of a culture within British hierarchy. All of this during that long shame of political appeasement. I shall return to this later. Even some of Churchill's secure transatlantic telephone calls to Roosevelt during the war were revealed to Germany by an American operator in Washington. The Air Ministry dissemination of some intelligence to the German air defense system was faulty throughout most of the war and deprived Bomber Command in particular of valuable information. Bomber Command and later the U.S. Army Air Force needed intelligence about the tactics by the German air defense system in the air engagements which took place almost every day following Germany's invasion of Western Europe. That requirement took those three forms. In 1941, the Air Ministry began to issue a series of intelligence bulletins to the RAF commands which were subsequently claimed in the official histories to have been of crucial importance to the conduct of air operations in all theatres of the war. But those bulletins suffered from time delays in circulation, 
Air operations demand the fastest response times. Those bulletins also had content problems that were neither appreciated at the time nor even when the official history of British intelligence was published in 1981. It may be true that official histories report what the officials are prepared to allow. A relevant internal memo within Bletchley by Gordon Welshman at that time declared intelligence can be most unreliable if it is produced by someone without the necessary judgment and knowledge. I put my remark there in green just as an aside comment. But the need for liaison went far beyond the inner workings of Bletchley Park and their interface with the Air Ministry. Intelligence producers and end product users in the field needed good liaison to close the overall intelligence circle. In this very crucial aspect, the Air Ministry in Whitehall actively denied liaison between Bletchley Park and the RAF Home Air Commanders. The Air Ministry did not adequately understand how Bletchley Park worked and most probably did not adequately understand what the Air Commanders required. Conversely, those commanders did not know what was available and they didn't know what they could ask for. It was Catch-22. During the early phases of the war, Sir Arthur Harris, to become Commander-in-Chief at Bomber Command, held two appointments where the various failings of the Air Intelligence and the Ministry of Economic Warfare estimates would have been very visible to him. From September 39 to November 1940, he was Air Officer Commanding AOC Number 5 Group within Bomber Command. Perhaps more importantly, from November 40 to May 41, he was Deputy Chief of Air Staff. To what extent did the memory of those early air intelligence and MEW estimates and their failures and their operational consequences remain with Harris as the war developed. It was very clear that he held serious reservations about air intelligence, and that was probably well justified at the time. The continuing problems with air intelligence and poor dissemination as the war evolved would have done nothing to relieve those reservations but would probably have reinforced his lack of trust in Whitehall. We shall never know if that would have changed had he been indoctrinated into the ultra-material and given access to relevant high-grade intelligence during his three and a half years as Commander-in-Chief. We must distinguish here very clearly between the original intelligence material as intercepted from the enemy and subsequent appreciations by Whitehall staffs. That question must remain unanswered and the consequences will always remain contentious. How strange 
that the British air commanders overseas and later the 8th Air Force in the UK had direct ultra-communication from Bletchley Park Hut 3 and gained great benefit from that liaison. I note here the direct transmission of ultra-reports to the Desert Air Force during the battles with Rommel. In the very crucial case of Sir Arthur Harris, at Bomber Command, it was crystal clear that he saw ultra-material at least twice. Once by the hand of the Prime Minister in the end of September 1944, regarding a signal to Tokyo from the Japanese ambassador in Berlin, and once within a special dossier from the Chief of Air Staff, Sir Charles Portal, early in January 1945. There is effort even as I speak by at least two people in this room to try to uncover just what was in that dossier. On both of those occasions, Harris noted in his replies, one to Sir Winston Churchill and one to the Chief of Air Staff, that he was not privy to that high-grade material. There's an unresolved question as to why that should have been. It is absolutely clear that it was in direct contravention of the linked routine protocol relating to the distribution of relevant ultra-material to all senior commanders within a joint operation. The official record of British intelligence in World War II makes absolutely no reference to this breach of the linked routing protocol. What could possibly have been more joint than the combined bombing offensive? But direct exchange did, place, did take place immediately between Bletchley and the 8th Air Force. Air intelligence in London could not obstruct that. And there is undoubted evidence that the 8th Air Force gained much benefit. The official history of the 8th pays great compliment to the work by and cooperation with Bletchley, with special attention to the speed of that support. Now, on to the early daylight bombing offensives. The bomber losses were so heavy that Bomber Command was forced to operate at night, with air crews that were largely untrained for night operations and with aircraft that were unsuitable and ill-equipped. Some thought had been given by the Air Ministry during the late 1930s to bombing at night, but very little as to how the bomber could be navigated and nothing as to how the target would be located and identified. There was a wonderful assumption that this fell into the hands of the professional pilot, supported by his observer. In May 1938, the observer was made responsible for navigation, but only in wartime. The trade of navigator did not come about until well into the war. The sad truth of that became officially inescapable after the Butch Report was issued on the 18th of August 41. The devastating conclusion was that on average only one bomber within three got within five miles of the target and in poor conditions that could fall to 1 in 15. The earlier impressions that had circulated and gained substance within Whitehall about the effectiveness of night bombing had sowed the seeds of hope. 
but they reaped the bitterness of disappointment when the facts became apparent. There was great reluctance among some to accept information that conflicted with long-held beliefs or wishful thinking. Perhaps that continues in the Whitehall jungle. There were many interrelated operational and technical factors which come into the equation. Air navigation and target location. We started with the most basic facilities, map reading, astro-navigation and dead reckoning. At night and in poor weather, it was good even to find the right city. I could quote Guy Gibson on one occasion as failing even to find the right country. The trick was the distinction between Denmark and Norway. The introduction of G, Oboe and H2S all provided great advances, but none offered precision in bombing terms. Air position errors of hundreds of yards up to several miles were still the standard of the day, even in the final stages of the war. And I'll amplify this a little later as well. As to bomb sites and bomb aiming, can you see in the dark? On a clear moonlit night, a bomb aimer at 20,000 feet had to see the target at a slant range of at least four to five miles when he began the bomb run into the bomb release point. That was no time to do rapid maneuvers to get the aircraft ground track properly aligned with the target. An alternative option when practicable was to take a visual position fix from a recognized ground feature and fly a dead reckoning approach to bomb release point. And then there was the option to use the radio navigation aids. And I emphasize navigation, not bomb aiming. There was a private and personal letter from the CNC to the Chief of Air Staff in April 44, protesting that it had taken four years to get a tactically practicable bomb site into full use. And that still required visual acquisition and identification of the target by the start of the bomb run, well before bomb release. The Pathfinder Force. I have great admiration for the Pathfinder Force. Let nothing that I say confuse you with that. But the best target marking generally came from visual target acquisition, and the lower the release altitude, the better was the accuracy for the ground markers. When the target was cloud-covered, as it often was, sky markers were used, but surprise, surprise, they moved with the wind. Intermediate wind velocities of 30 to 60 knots at medium altitude were not unusual. That meant that a one-minute delay in the bomber main force being over target allowed a sky marker drift of a half to one mile. And all of this comes down to the circular error probable, the CEP. This denotes the distance around the aiming point, 
within which 50% of the bombs will impact. I shall certainly come back to this. And I'm quite sure that these factors were not widely appreciated and understood across the Whitehall jungle. The analysis of Bomber Command's bomb inaccuracy was evaluated by the Command Operational Research Section. This slide, copied from an official report, is an indication of the sort of accuracy that was possible during the summer of 1943 using the then new OBO radio navigation aid. Only 10% of the aircraft bombed within one half mile of the target. 50% of the aircraft were within 1.8 miles of the target. Now just imagine what else lies within that area, centred on the aiming point. And half the bombs fell outside that area, by any measure that was certainly not precision. But it was a lot better than a couple of years earlier. The operational research section provided post-war statistical results by Bomber Command for the last eight months of the year, of the war. The key things here, using oboe at night time, the average error would be 930 yards, but that was centered on a systematic error of up to 750 yards. These distances increased with increasing range from the oboe ground stations. We need to be very clear here about the way that oboe worked and what it could deliver as the range from the target increased. Again, by no real measure can this be called precision. But precision was constantly spoken about in the Whitehall area as if it was a matter of fact. Now, was that propaganda, or was it self-delusion, or was it simple ignorance of the facts? Turpits may very well be claimed as an example of precision. But the actual bomb fall distribution on the 15th of September 1944 from a bomb in altitude of 16,000 feet in daylight is illuminating uh, this is not an awfully good picture, and I apologize for that, but it's the best I can do from the original material. Tirpitz is there. Four bombs are extremely close. One actually hit the ship, but she was not sunk on that occasion. The key point is that these circles, 300, 600, 900 yards, the CEP, the Circular Error Probable, of the 17 bombs that were dropped, worked out to just over 400 yards. Some bombs were quite a long way away. Now place that situation if you were bombing a factory in a built-up area. Would you call that precision bombing or would you call that area bombing? There would certainly be very heavy collateral damage. Let me be very clear that Bomber Command made some very successful, genuinely precision attacks. The dams, of course. Operation Jericho 
recently on television, the raid on the Amiens prison, the major German shipping canals. The vital point is that those precision attacks were almost invariably done under good visual conditions. Some, such as the dams and Amiens, from very low altitude. This picture shows a 105 Squadron Mosquito attacking the armament works at Liège, 12th of March 1943. You could say that was low altitude. The main force attacks with the heavy bombers during the spring of 1944 against the French and the Belgian railway networks had surprisingly good accuracy, but they were at comparatively short range from the UK-based Oboe Navigation Ground Stations, and they were conducted only in good nighttime conditions. There was a compelling political directive to minimize French and Belgian civilian casualties. And air crews were ordered not to release their bombs unless they had clear target visibility. Those constraints did not apply against enemy targets in Germany. By way of comparison, between Bomber Command and the 8th American Air Force, the American bombing trials in the USA from an altitude of 20,000 feet in good visual conditions with Norden bomb sites demonstrated that a 100-foot circular target on the ground could be hit. And that gave rise to a rather false impression about high-altitude precision bombing in a combat environment over Europe. The vital ingredient was visual target identification during a steady bombing run into the point of bomb release. That was usually denied over German targets by any combinations of cloud, ground haze, smoke obscuration and decoys on the ground, quite apart from air-to-air -air combat and flak. This image was taken in daylight. The target is not awfully visible. The obscuration is from enemy smokescreen decoys. The intensity of the flak and the German air defence often forced the American bombers up to 25,000 feet and higher, which certainly did not help accuracy either. So what about the bombing accuracy by the Americans? This slide shows extracts from an official record of radar-aided bombing by the 8th in November 1944. 117 American squadrons, each of a dozen or so aircraft, were dispatched. The CEP, Circular Error Probable, that magic number, 50% of the bombs within one mile. This is from American records. Now, the Americans called that precision. Remember, if you will, that for the last eight months of the war, the average bomber command CEP at night using oboe was 930 yards, albeit on a systematic error of 750. 
If we look at a more general analysis of American bombing under good to medium visual conditions, the yield was here. In 1943, average CEP of 1,000 yards, good to visual conditions, reduces to 500 yards in 1944 and down to 400 in 1945. It was the American policy to speak of precision. It was good for American aircrew morale, and it was good for American public relations, such as the nature of government propaganda. Described by our own foreign secretary, even in 1935, as one of the most pernicious features of modern life. Now, the Whitehall Warriors expected Bomber Command to deliver precision bombing by night, notwithstanding that the Americans did not do that during the day. I note that in 1948, when General Curtis LeMay became commander of the American Strategic Air Command, one of his greatest concerns was bombing accuracy. And that was with nuclear weapons. The truth of the matter, I suggest, is that there was hardly any real difference between the British night bombing and the American daylight bombing results, except that one was known as area and the other was called precision. That had massively different interpretation and presentation by the politicians and the media. It is in the very essence of public relations Everything hinges on the image. A major theme that ran through the Ministry of Economic Warfare estimates of German economic and industrial strength was one of underestimating the reserve capacity that was available in the aggregate armament production capacity. The period of greatest German armament productivity was not actually reached until the middle of 1944, when Albert Speer had been in charge for over two years. That heavily disguised the impact of the strategic bombing offensive and in turn led to critical underassessment of the performance of both Bomber Command and the 8th Air Force. And I should not exclude the 15th Air Force either. The bombing offensive was actually having very serious toll of German armament production, as became very clear from the post-war bombing surveys. Indeed, without that strategic bombing, the German armament production would have been unrestrained. We can only speculate on the consequences of that so far as the outcome of the war was concerned. The War Cabinet, in conjunction with the Chiefs of Staff, the Ministry of Economic Warfare and the various target committees, determined the general objectives of strategic bombing policy. There were various UK and US target committees, but latterly they were merged into the Combined Strategic Targets Committee. That Whitehall plethora of committees subcommittees, advisory bodies, and technical experts aggravated rather than smoothed the path of decision-making. 
and complicated rather than clarified the planning and targeting process. The effect was to create predisposition in the minds of some senior political and military decision makers who often chose to rely on the advice of one or other of those various committees or individual experts. There was much room for persuasive argument, not always encumbered with the burden of fact. Mr. Eden, Mr. Eden, I have to say, later Lord Avon, was well able to sway an audience. Now the various Whitehall and American oil committees had the ear of the cabinet and they were therefore able to exert considerable influence. Some members of the oil committee were from the Ministry of Economic Warfare. Some also sat as members of separate target committees. Oil was the dominant Whitehall target throughout the war. But was that a product of an arrogant and naive culture within Whitehall? It had been strongly argued at the start of the war that Germany would run out of oil within six months. But there had been no anticipation that Germany would occupy an entire continent together with the manufacturing industries and the raw material, including the oil fields. Did some people have personal judgments to defend? There was hardly any appreciation of the greater dependence of the whole German economy and armaments industry on coal and transportation. But these corridors of influence were covert and closed to the bomber commanders. World War II had many examples of transportation failure that crippled major military and industrial campaigns. In the desert campaign, Rommel ran out of ammunition and fuel, but there was no shortage of either on the other side of the Mediterranean. It was simply in the wrong place. Enigma showed that very clearly. The invasion of Russia failed because of transportation problems combined, of course, with the Russian winter. The Allied invasions of Italy succeeded because the Italian transportation system was devastated by Allied bombing. Under the command of Allied military leaders and not Whitehall committees, it was only because of the insistence of the Deputy Supreme Commander Air Chief Marshal Tedder in the run-up to Overlord through the spring of 1944 that the strategic bombing offensive targeted and crippled the Belgian and French railways as a prelude to the Overlord invasion. A dispersal of the German war industry is because of bomb damage. Now you may ask, why did they disperse those industries if Allied strategic bombing was ineffective? Those dispersed industries became critically dependent on transportation to serve both the delivery of raw materials, the distribution of products between different factories, and then to end users at the battlefronts. And that national internal transportation system ultimately collapsed 
under the weight of strategic bombing. For the UK, the Battle of the Atlantic was all about transportation for the support and resupply of the UK home base. Had that battle been lost, UK may well have been unable to continue the struggle. The really critical factor concerning oil was in fact transportation. Tedder called transportation the common denominator and he had valuable field experience both in North Africa and Italy. Let's just take account of some of the distances. If Germany needed to move an army unit from the eastern front to the western front, and I take the example, for example, say from Rostov to somewhere in France, we were looking at something in the order of 2,000 miles. That sort of distance may well be compared with ocean distances for the UK in the Battle of the Atlantic. A German report from the Ruhr in January 1945, intercepted from Enigma, stated that the delivery of coal and coke had fallen to less than one-tenth of normal supplies. Deliveries into and armament products dispatched from the Ruhr had fallen to 5% of the August 1944 level, and that was the peak of productivity. But even that small fraction of products often failed to reach their intended destinations because rail conditions and communications were so disrupted that consignments could not be tracked. Transportation by rail and by canal had the same strategic importance to Germany as did convoys and merchant shipping to the UK. The remarkable fact, as seen by the post-war British and US bombing surveys, was that these effects of the attacks on transportation and their byproducts were given so little attention. The intelligence and planning staffs, the combined strategic targets committee and the Ministry of Economic Warfare had or seemed to have little appreciation of the magnitude of the impact on the ground. The evidence was there, but it was not appreciated. A reference to the selective use of ultra-evidence investigated at the direction of the Deputy Chief of Air Staff in February 1945 found that, and I quote from the official record, what brought German industry down was the attack on the railway system, desultory though it was, because of the opposition that was strenuously led by the Director of Bomber Operations and the Ministry of Economic Warfare. What had been subsequently discovered is that MEW was sitting on scores of ultra-reports that indicated that the whole German industrial system had started to break down by September 1944 as a result of the paralysis of the railway system. End quote. However, the official history of British intelligence at Chapter 54 maintains a criticism against Bomber Command and the Commander-in-Chief, but makes no reference to the abuse and misuse of the intelligence within government departments. Now, was that official history freely written by Hinsley, 
or was it constrained by the officials? The Chilcot Inquiry may have strong precedent. Finally, there are three principal topics. There were the power groups, the changing British political thinking and the contribution of the strategic bomber offensive to victory. May I remind you of that wonderful statement by Sir Winston when he was in the White House in December 1941, just after the attack on Pearl Harbor. In answer to the question, how long do you expect that we will take to win the war? He said, if we manage well, it'll take us half as long as if we manage it badly. So the power groups, the Ministry of Economic Warfare, came to regard itself as an expert in strategic target selection. But I note on the side that A.G.P. Taylor, in his History of England, declares that the Ministry of Economic Warfare probably did more harm to Britain than to Germany. Selective use of intelligence could be an attempt to display a veneer of indispensability. It's a commonly practiced art and flourishes in a world where secrecy can be a cloak for mediocrity. The oil lobby. The committee started even before the war with the absolutely proper mandate to determine German oil stocks. Oil was championed as the critical sector of the German economy. The German armed forces were absolutely dependent on the armaments industry. Oil was just one of those outputs and it all required transportation to the point of operational use. And I regret to say the Air Ministry Directorate of Bomber Operations, I have no quarrel with the Directorate per se, but the outstanding and unresolved issue is the personal and professional conflict between Harris at Bomber Command and Bufton, the Director of Bomber Operations in London. And the position of the Chief of Air Staff, Sir Charles Portal. The resolution of that intense personality clash and the massive distraction in senior staff time and effort was a responsibility of, and in the end, a failure by Portal. It gave direct sustenance to the campaign against Harris and Bomber Command. The post-war British Bombing Survey Unit made serious criticism of the intelligence that was provided to Bomber Command. It found that intelligence weaknesses were due to the methods that were used by political, military and intelligence staffs in appreciating the available information. Appreciations were often coloured by preconceived ideas or by wishful thinking. They were responsible, either by commission or omission, for the Allied failure to recognise the overriding strength and potential reserves of the German armament production capability. The British Bombing Survey Unit reported that the gravity of that error was so fundamental as to be impossible to understand. Towards the end of the war, there was extensive shuffling of the information and responsibility within Whitehall 
regarding the strategic bombing offensive. In some cases, this arose because of a lack of understanding. In other cases, because of entrenched positions taken by some authorities and some parties. And yet in further cases, because of some personalities and their ambitions. Politics can be very selective with the truth. Some political and military commanders did not want to know what had happened. There was an active lobby on the ethics and morals of bombing. And that continues to this day. There was a widespread effort within Whitehall to distance itself from the facts and to suppress recognition of the Allied strategic bombing and the overwhelming contribution to the Allied victory. I regret to say that even the Air Council appeared to have been part of that lobby. We should never overlook the fact that Dresden was nominated for attack by the Combined Strategic Target Committee. It was agreed with the War Cabinet, the Allied Supreme Commander, and the Chiefs of Staff. The Prime Minister himself was in agreement because it satisfied the long-standing political purpose to support the Russians on the Eastern Front. The Allied bomber commanders, British and American, opposed the selection of Dresden on military grounds, but they then became the instruments of discharging that task. It was not their choice. They were left with the blame. That is the price of politics. Sir Charles Webster and Dr Noble Franklin compiled the official record of the strategic bombing offensive which was not released until 1961, just after the death of Sir Charles. Dr. Franklin made a very damaging comment in the preface to a subsequent book called The History of War. I quote, Sir Charles Webster and I had to fight a severe and prolonged offensive to secure the publication of our history on our own terms as opposed to those of officialdom. The battle was to defeat a concerted attempt to emasculate the history so that it would fit the convenience of the mandarins in the 1950s and the early 1960s. End quote. Apart from those mandarins in Whitehall, there were senior members of the political establishment, notably Clement Attlee, deputy head of the war cabinet, and other political and military chiefs who had direct involvement with the strategic bombing offensives and the surrounding politics. There were personal reputations at stake. The truth was an uncomfortable companion. Here was another example of Whitehall's determination to conceal the political decisions relating to the bombing offensives, to the misuse of intelligence, and then contribute to the subsequent recriminations and character assassinations. <coughs> the dispatch on war operations written by the commander-in-chief himself at the end of the war was withheld from general publication, unlike the other operational dispatches which were quickly released for public consumption. 
The Bomber Command Dispatch was not released until 1995, 50 years after it was written. There was an excellent introduction by Sebastian Cox, head of the Air Historical Branch within MOD. I say, Sebastian does not say this, that the collective criticisms and rejections of that dispatch by the Air Ministry and Whitehall at the end of the war were dishonourable, reflecting guilt or liability in the minds of those critics. Albert Speer, the German Reichsminister for Armament, wrote, The real importance of the bombing offensive was that it opened a second front, long before any Allied invasion of Western Europe. Without the sustained strategic bombing offensive against the German war industry, the outcome of the war could have been very different. The German war industry would have delivered the means to sustain the land armies and the air forces on both the eastern and the western fronts. The one million German personnel and the guns, especially the dreaded 88mm anti-tank gun used for air defence, would have been available to the battlefronts on the ground. With unhindered German war production, transportation services and air superiority, it is at least doubtful that the Allied invasion in Normandy could have been mounted, let alone succeeded. Stalin also regarded the strategic bombing as the second front. This had compelling political weight for the Western Allies, and we should never overlook the material support to Russia with the Arctic convoys. But had Stalin sued for peace with Hitler when Barbarossa foundered in the winter snow, the outcome of World War II could well have been very different for the Western Allies. Do not mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that strategic bombing won the war. Far from it. The Allied victory in the West was in every sense a combination of land and air power. What I am saying is that the strategic bombing undoubtedly paved the way for the Allied armies to successfully secure the Normandy landings and then to capture and hold Western Germany. What I'm also saying, by way of an opinion, is that the British and American political decision to use strategic bombing on the Eastern Front in support of the Russians created the unintended consequence that those Russian armies were then able to move much further into Poland, Czechoslovakia and Eastern Germany. The true cost of that political decision became clear when the so-called Iron Curtain was established and Europe was divided for nearly 50 years. Let us never forget the massive contribution to the Western war effort by the Poles and their priceless contribution to the solving of the Enigma puzzle. They suffered two brutal invasions, first by the Germans and then by the Russians, our allies at the time. Maybe we should ask if the emotional outcry about Dresden should have been better directed to the politicians who effectively abandoned Eastern Europe 
to the brutality of the invading Russians. That was a far higher price for millions of those people to pay. Let me remind you where we started. So there we have it. Power groups within Whitehall, each with their own agendas. The two common features were that they each believed that their agenda was the best and none had the responsibility to deliver the required effect. Bomber Command was denied intelligence of great importance to the operational planning and conduct of the bombing offensive. A field commander cannot be expected to put the lives of his troops at serious risk on the basis of decisions made in Whitehall by people in whom that commander had no trust. And it was subsequently politically expedient to point the finger of blame and recrimination at Bomber Command, but strangely, not at the American Air Force and their commanders. I wonder what the ongoing Chilcot inquiry will eventually reveal about the processes in Whitehall and the shifting of responsibilities and blame. After the war, Sir Winston wrote of the bomber crews, they never flinched or failed. It is to their devotion that in no small measure we owe our victory. Let us salute them. I've finished. Thank you very much, John, for a lecture that gives us all a lot of things to think about. Now, we have plenty of time for discussion. Uh, my name's John Ed. I would like to ask you, it's clear that for a prolonged period during the war, the British government, while they had the intelligence from Ultra, were paralysed with fear that this knowledge was going to be disclosed. So on occasions, though they knew dreadful things were going to happen, they didn't react or react in an appropriate manner because they feared disclosure. How much of your worry about Ultra uh, is based on that premise, or are you premising that the government was just incompetent in the way it handled the intelligence? Thank you. I think the answer to that is interesting and complex, and if I may, I will answer it in part, having been an intelligence officer, albeit during the Cold War. The point that I was really seeking to make there, in the sense of dissemination, was the failure to put before Harris the original material as it was derived by Bletchley Park through the Enigma decryption process into the Ultra product. The point there is that that had the very words that were generated by the enemy. What Harris saw was the consequence of appreciations within Whitehall by many people, individuals and committees. And it is my view that the output of committee appreciations can obscure and sometimes confuse the original intelligence upon which it is based. 
That may or may not be intentional. And I can certainly vouch, as indeed, I think, Sebastian, you and I were debating last week at Bletchley, to provide a commander with the highest security information by way of a secure telephone and a verbal conveyance of information is the sort of thing that may never find itself in records. What I cannot vouch for is that Harris, just like Dowding during the period of the Battle of Britain, may well have had, from time to time, secure telephone calls from the Air Ministry, which may have provided him with information that he could never see in writing. But I maintain my point that the policy of denying the commander sight of that original material left open the view, and this is a personal view, that he suspected the motives of those who were writing appreciations. That, I think, is the main point that I would like to say in answer to your question. Sir, um, Tony Purton, I was in the MOD procurement. And uh, you mentioned Albert Speer, Speer a couple of times. And uh, he was a bit of a hero of mine. I've been looking for him ever since to, to lead the uh, British procurement system. But um, he, when he was interviewed by the Americans, um, is said to have suggested that if um, the Allies had con- uh, concentrated on bombing the oil supplies then the Germans would have been finished. He didn't mention anything about transport. Um, are we to believe that that's what he really meant, or was he pulling somebody's leg at the time? I think the answer to that again becomes interesting and potentially complex. From what I've seen, and I do not pretend to have seen everything that Speer wrote by half, he said many things, and I believe... I can say that not all that he said was consistent. But I cannot, in all honesty, defend that statement that he said on one occasion that oil would have, or the absence of oil, would have destroyed the conflict. He did also say other things. Roger Blackburn, I've got two questions for you, John. Um, The first is that um, with the passage of time, I might be able to excuse some of this uh, lack of intelligence and transmission of it. Um, Being privileged to work for one of our allies during the first Gulf War, um, do you think that we've changed, and you've mentioned Chilcot several times, that we're now too ready to accept intelligence from YouTube, CNN, etc.? My second one is about the bombing campaign. Do you not think with hindsight that we blamed on Dresden to avoid what had happened at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that that was definitely area bombing and how many people it did kill? Dresden wasn't a particular military target, and we wanted to whitewash over that so we as a nation wouldn't be blamed. I think if I can take your first question, Roger... Um, I have great sympathy with the question. 
Um, but I was saying, uh, please, what I say on the subject is almost irrelevant, but what I've heard and what I have certainly said is that the amount of information that's available in the public domain on the web and elsewhere is A, staggering, B, highly doubtful, C, in some cases, a downright lie. And I think the Liverson inquiry, as I was listening even at lunchtime, would probably substantiate possibly all three of those things. So I'm a little reserved about information which it would be very difficult to substantiate. Apropos the bombing, um, as you mentioned, uh, Dresden, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, I've not given thought to the consequences of that. I think the major row about Dresden, I think probably was abroad before those attacks on Japan. Whether those attacks on Japan exacerbated in any way that, I don't know. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that question, Roger. Ed Martin. Um, two things. One's just an observation. Um, on the precision bombing um, concept, my recollection from the wartime was that the um, Americans would say that their bombing from high altitude with an Orden bomb site would drop into a pickle barrel. That was the phrase they used. Um, but I have a question. What would you, how would you view the fact that some of the information from Bletchley was in fact sieved or held, um, not, not, not put forward on the basis that the um, powers that be didn't want the Germans to know that we could actually access their information? If I can take the first question, I think that's just very easy, and I think we probably might readily agree that the phrase drop a bomb in a pickle barrel was fairly common parlance, but it was predicated very much upon the trials out on the western part of America in very clear weather and very benign conditions. In general, I hold with the view that that did not travel across the Atlantic very well and that in the combat environment over Europe, that was a very rare proportion of the actuality. The second question... Hmm... Can I think on that for a moment? I'll come back to you if I may, but I'm sorry. I'm just refreshing in my mind what might be a better, better answer. Uh, Sebastian Cox. Um, I've got one or two comments and a couple of questions for you, John. Comment. Uh, one is about the publication of Harris's dispatch, since I was the man who published it. Um, it is true to say that it wasn't published until 1995. That's absolutely true. It was, however, available in the public record office from about 1972. So it's not entirely accurate to say mm. that it was uh, kept secret until the mid-1990s. Mm. Um, oddly enough, Harris agreed with the Air Ministry's decision not to publish it. Um, 
And he agreed, partly, although it, it clearly suited them as well, there was uh, a degree to which the Air Ministry didn't want to see it published in 19, well, at the end of the war, because they felt that it was a blueprint for how to mount a strategic bombing offensive. And since that was about the only thing they thought they were going to be able to do to the Russians, there was an element to which they didn't want to publish it because they didn't want to tell the Russians how they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some sympathy with that. That is not to say that there wasn't also a big bureaucratic battle with some people in the air ministry who felt that it was too critical of them. Um, a comment or two about the Americans and their bombing. The first is that 52% of the 8th Air Force bomb tonnage dropped between 1942 and 1945 over Northwest Europe was dropped non-visually. That is to say that 52% of the time they were engaged in area bombing. Um, the other is to just point out that even when they had the Norden bomb site, even when they could see the target, even when they were using it, they still uh, had to bomb by bomber box. What that meant was that the lead bombardier in the box of uh, several aeroplanes was using his Norden bomb site. Every other bombardier in the box was watching the lead aeroplane, and the first thing that came out of the lead aeroplane's bomb bay was a smoke flare. And every other bomber in the box, every other bombardier, pressed the button to release his bombs when he saw the flare. He wasn't even using his extremely expensive piece of American technology. And the reason for that was, if you tried to put hundreds of bombers over one target, with each one individually using his bomb site to try and identify it and drop the bombs, it would take you several hours to progress. And the Germans might just possibly cotton on to what you were doing. So they had to bomb by bomber box, which meant that their precision was ipso facto even if the lead bombardier got it right, the size of the bomber box, which covered some acres of sky. Um, John, my questions to you are, um, firstly, you've tended to paint the situation in 44, 45 in a sort of, uh, uh, well, black and white. Um, but I think one of the problems with the bomber offensive at that point is that it wasn't black and white. Yes, Bufton and the Combined Strategic Targets Committee, known, of course, by by Harris as the Oily Boys, um, yes, they all believed that oil was the target set that should have first priority, which it did. But all of them also conceded, of course, that you couldn't hit oil all the time because you could only hit it visually. Um, and therefore... For a lot of the rest of the time, you had to attack a um, secondary system. And the secondary system, of course, was the railways. And one of the problems with the post-war debate is it's got skewed by the statistics. But actually, even the 8th Air Force, whose commander, Sparts, was convinced that oil was the target, in the run-up to uh, the end of 1944, in those months, October, November, December, even the 8th, the difference between the amount of effort devoted by the 8th Air Force to bombing oil and the amount of effort devoted by Bomber Command to bombing oil in terms of their totals was 4%. So you can see that actually uh, 
you could not, even though they, they were obsessed with oil and they were pointing to oil all the time, they knew that you couldn't attack oil all the time. And actually, most of the time, they wanted Harris to attack the Ruhr and railways. Um, and so, although you've, you, you've quite rightly pointed to the fact that they all wanted MEW and the CSTC, all wanted oil to be the focus of, of the attacks, that you tended to suggest that railways were therefore not in the picture at all. But actually, railways were in the picture most of the time, and they produced consistently lists of which railway targets they wanted to attack and in what order. So one of the interesting questions, of course, is would oil per se... There's a there's an inherent suggestion within what you're saying that they should somehow have said railways, not oil. But actually, I would suggest to you that these are complementary systems and actually attacking both did us better than if, say, you'd reversed it and said, we'll go for railways alone and leave oil alone. Mm. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Sebastian, I should say for the audience, Sebastian, that we have had views and thoughts about this for, for a while, and I completely and utterly accept what Sebastian has just said. Thank you. Sorry, directly. My, my, in a way, if I needed to defend what I said, I would partly say that in the book there, which has got 450 pages, there is a huge amount of the detail the like of which Sebastian was referring to, in the context of 12 pages, which is what I read here this evening, there was significant abbreviation, and I regret to say in many cases, deletion, because unless you would have liked to stay for much longer, I didn't cover all of those details. If I just sort of walk gently through the sort of comments that you were making, Sebastian, I completely and utterly concur your view that the Americans, by virtue of their bombing policy, bombed as bombing boxes, and they all worked on the fact of the lead bombardier. And I would say in that sense, as I suspect you would also utterly appreciate, is that they recognized that if a bomber force of, let's say, 50-odd aircraft, in a rather close formation, which was the nature of the bomber box, all bombed when the lead bombardier thought he'd got the right target, it was a very fair bet that 49 aircraft's bombs were going to fall somewhere else. So one of their sort of responses to this was for the lead bombardier to overfly the target and bomb beyond the target, so that if you like the centre of gravity of bombing from the force was better distributed around the target. Now, does that count as precision or area? And I think we probably allow in that sense that a comment, a remark made by one of the American commanders, which I think sums the situation up quite clearly, is that he tended, he took the view and he said that the British conducted precision bombing of area targets and that we the Americans, did area bombing of precision targets. That's a, a com convoluted sort of sense of words there, but broadly speaking, the end results, 
I think in the terms of bomb fall around the target, were largely indistinguishable. Apropos oil and transport, again, I have to say one of the major conclusions in, in my work is that it's probably impracticable now, or particularly at the time, to have divided those two targets and say, I will only go for that and not for that. Transportation, not oil, or vice versa. Indeed, in the the priorities coming down from point blank, at different times, transportation was as high as second priority. But I do note that the Combined Strategic Target Committee, when it formed, I think in October 44, did not have a transportation subcommittee. It had five or six other subcommittees, but not transportation. I've no explanation for that beyond the fact that a transportation committee did come on board reasonably quickly. Is that a fair enough commentary upon what you said, Sebastian? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have not overlooked your question right at the back. I'm sorry. Could I ask you, please, if you could run the question by me again, your second question? Yes. I'm sorry to have missed. Um, it really was, do you think that um, the some of the ultra information was either um, changed or um, not even passed through in yes. case it told the Germans, we can read your messages? Yes, I think the answer to that is... if. if I'm reluctant to say yes or no, but what I will say very clearly is that throughout much of the early stages, the security associated with the product from Enigma was held in the tightest possible sense. And Churchill himself expressed very forthright views upon that. I note just as a matter of example that the commander-in-chief of Bomber Command Air Chief Marshal Pierce was specifically nominated by Churchill to receive ultra information in 1940-41. But the man called C somehow declined to implement that direction from Churchill. And the Commander-in-Chief never did get that information. When Portal was Commander-in-Chief, he didn't see it, and neither did Harris. I cannot answer that question, but if I can come directly to your question in terms of the immense security resident in keeping the knowledge of Enigma in a very small community, that I think prevailed. However, as the war went by and we got into 43-44, and particularly with the number of American commanders and other agencies and committees, that would have received Enigma, so the portfolio of people with that clearance became remarkably large, really. So why wasn't the Commander-in-Chief Bomber Command part of that bigger party? And I have no explanation for that. Um, uh, Richard Bateson. Um, one of the uh, most important departments uh, within Air Ministry Intelligence after August 41, once they had the reorganisation, was the Department of Intelligence Security. 
Now, this particular department, uh, if you go to TNA at Q, you, the, your chances of finding many documents from, from this particular source are almost nil. And I just wondered why this is. I think, like you, Richard, I don't have a particularly bright answer to that. Um, I've got several thoughts that may come down, but quite honestly, I cannot answer your question specifically. I could only offer an opinion, and I'm not sure how valuable that opinion might be. In part, the opinion is that there is still quite a lot of information. In fact, on Monday this week, I was spent lunchtime in the afternoon with Sir Arthur Bonsall, who was a previous director of GCHQ. And we were both bemoaning the amount of classified information that is still held in the archives at Cheltenham and also in the Ministry of Defence, which has not yet been released into the public domain. And the bottom line reason for that at Cheltenham is that to review the material and release it to the public records takes effort, informed effort, and that simply is neither available nor affordable. So even Sir Arthur, as a previous director, cannot get into those archives. Neither can his daughter, who was a deputy director. And I've got no chance. I tried freedom of information, and I have to say on one occasion I got a very sensible answer. Sorry, I do not mean the other answers were rubbish. But I did seek freedom of information to gain access to some particular source at Cheltenham. And the reply which I got from the historian was totally logical. It related to traffic analysis in the signals context. And he basically said the techniques that we use then, pretty much the techniques that we use now. Richard Lucraft, uh, if I understand you correctly from earlier in your talk, you said that um, the Americans were getting raw um, uh, ultra intel when, while Harris and Bomber Command only had it on two occasions, didn't Harris and Bomber, Com Bomber Command realize that this was happening? I mean, they were not operating totally separately. There were, there were a considerable amount of, of, uh, of exchange of information between them. Did it never, never occur to Bomber Command that, that they were being left out? Well, I can't answer your specific question on whether it ever occurred to them. What I can say quite positively is that Command Intelligence Officer, uh, Commodore Peter Painter, was cleared to receive that information. However, I have been unable to find any evidence from Bomber Command records, and I would appreciate any advice you may offer, Sebastian, on whether Bomber Command at High Wycombe actually received any such information as distinct from Peter Painter going to ministry meetings and elsewhere where that information was a prerequisite for the meetings. I have not been able to find any evidence from Bomber Command Intelligence that they had the means of holding that material. What I do note is that the Special Liaison Unit, which was set up largely under the control of Group Captain Winterbottom, established an SLU at the 8th Air Force headquarters at Pine Tree and that Bomber Command had to serve its information through that same route. It never had direct routing. It went through Pine Tree. Again, I don't begin to understand why that should have been. 
but I simply have never been able to establish that that information was available in Bomber Command. But I would appreciate, Sebastian, in this sense, any comment that you may feel your much longer experience brings to the table. I don't really have anything to add to that, John. Thank you. Uh, David Park. Um, was G and GH available at, towards the end of the war, or did they come after? It certainly was available, yes. GH. Okay. The other question I wanted to ask is, uh, for my sins at the end of my time in the RAF, I was office commanding Hull Beach Bombing Range. And one day I was taken out uh, to the target out in the wash by the uh, chief range warden. You don't walk about in the wash by yourself, by the way. And we went out to the target, which, and then climbed up. The top of the target is about as big as this room. In the middle is a, a big stick. It's about a foot square, the main central point of the target. And somebody had put a bomb down the middle of that big stick. Would you say that was precision bombing? Yes, I certainly would. Dare I ask a question? When did that happen? I have no idea. Okay. I, I, I have no idea because it had been there for some time. It was trapped yeah. inside the woodwork. Yes. Um, I, I think suppose the person who put it down would never know. <laughs> I think I have a variety of answers to that question. Not all of them totally trivial, but I would observe it was not surprise me if that had happened, but I wondered where the other 999 went to. <laughs> and in a sense there, I would relate it to somewhat later times, but particularly 1982, when we had a Vulcan bombing Stanley at the end of an extremely lengthy air-to-air -air refueling exercise. And of two sticks of 21 bombs dropped by a Vulcan from about 10,000 feet in a relatively benign environment, one bomb hit the runway and one bomb hit the shoulder. So I'm basically saying that of 42 bombs that were dropped, one hit the target and one hit the shoulder. The Vulcan was equipped with pretty much the same bombing apparatus as was the Lancaster. Um, but the trick was only, in that sense, that they were bombing from a slightly lower altitude. And the bomb Kit. that hit was the very end of the stick, wasn't it? I think it was, yes. But I would defer to Graham there. You may know the answer specifically. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was a fastball. But coming back to your comment in terms of one bomb in that situation, it is the very nature of statistics. You know, if you have a CEP of, call it what you will, something is probably going to go in the middle. I, I did go to a presentation by the pilot of that Vulcan only last week. Did you? And uh, yes, he confirms Black, what you said. Black butt. Um, but he also reckoned that that was pretty well as good as you were likely to get at the angle of running. Um, and he said that if they'd overrun literally by 75 feet, then there would be nothing on the runway. Um, but he said, given the range, given the the weather, the technology, the navigation, and everything else, um, the one was actually a pretty lucky strike, and, and that was about as good as you were going to get um, with that angle of attack and the bomb run and, and everything else. Please don't let me misinterpret your comment there, but who was speaking? Uh, 
The name escapes me, but it was the pilot of that okay. particular Vulcan yes, presenting yes. to the British Aircraft Preservation okay. Council yes. um, at Finlay, home yes. of the Vulcan. Yeah. Uh, just a fairly trivial remark, I mean, those people who know me, Harry Fraser Mitchell, ex-Handley Page of a long time ago, uh, would expect me to say this, and that if they'd used a victor, they would have 30... <laughs> They would have had 35 bombs to play with, and not just 21. <laughs> I can make no comment there about the victor, but I can say that I did once or twice fly in a Vulcan. Um, that's procurement for you. <laughs> I'll defer that to your colleague behind you. <laughs> Could I bring you back to uh, World War II for a moment? <laughs> uh, Dresden was not the only German city that had been relatively undamaged up till 1945 um, and that had perhaps relatively little military significance and was destroyed or badly damaged um, in the early months of 45. Würzburg was another and I think there were several others. Um, was the, apart from leaving Dresden apart, um, were the attacks on these relatively unimportant, but militarily, but culturally and historically wonderful cities, um, a result of intelligence failures or targeting failures or I mean, the popular press talks about Bomber Command having run out of cities to bomb by then, which is, I have no idea whether that is a valid comment. But could you give us any views on the destruction of these relatively minor cities towards the end of the war? I could make a comment, um, but I think my comment is rather more coming from an American point of view than a British point of view. Um, and this, I think, applies particularly through the last six months of the war. Kit, I think, is absolutely right in saying that a large number of primary targets had been engaged more or less successfully. But I can recall specifically from an American point of view that they would always go out on a mission with a primary target and a secondary target. And I can vouch for the fact that from post-mission reports, there were many cases, I wouldn't like to sort of put a proportion on this, but certainly many cases, where both the primary and the secondary target were not attacked for reasons that may have been visibility or defense or any one of a number of reasons. And I can say that on no small number of occasions, they engage targets of opportunity. Um, I do not believe that I can say with the same confidence that Bomber Command did that but I would simply defer answering that question with relation to Bomber Command. But certainly the Americans, when the primary and the secondary were not available to them, would take targets of opportunity. Gordon Bruce. 
May I make a small contribution on the matter of Dresden? The Royal Air Force Museum has what they called the Bombers Baedeker, which was an appreciation by the Ministry of Economic Warfare of each German town and what it was producing for the war effort. I happened to look, or Peter Elliott uh, directed me to the pages for Dresden, which follow the standard pattern of the Bombers Baedeker, uh, identifying companies by name and their street address and what they were manufacturing for the German war effort. In the case of Dresden, it wasn't smokestack industries. It was precision engineering, fuses and the like. Mm. Now, those industries were still in operation immediately before the Royal Air Force raid. And it happens that the, there was substantial employment of Jewish slave workers in those factories at the time. And they were marched in and out of the town morning and night because it was a Jew-free town. And it happens that one morning they had received orders to assemble to be sent elsewhere. And they knew what that meant. But it just happens that the Royal Air Force raid intervened that night. So they no longer had to assemble and be taken elsewhere. So Dresden was, in fact, still producing precision engineering. I think the Germans called it Feinwerk. Uh, for the German war effort up to the time of the Royal Air Force bombing. I would completely concur with your comment there, and I certainly would not wish the audience to believe that I thought that Dresden only produced shepherdesses. There were a number of things manufactured in Dresden, and at that particular time, possibly one of the most important, not necessarily the most important, but one of the most important factors was in fact its railhead. And I think in that sense, the very time in which I believe it was the 6th Panzer Army was being relocated from the Western Front, just downstream from the Ardennes Offensive, to the Eastern Front, and its routing, the knowledge of which we had from Enigma, took it through that area, which included Dresden, Leipzig, Chemnitz and Berlin, for the bomber commanders to have said, as the records show, that they did not perceive that there was a military justification for Dresden, I believe is reasonable to interpret that they saw higher military justification for other targets, actually on the Western Front, not on the Eastern Front. As it turned out, of course, the attack on Dresden, and I have personally spoken with a bomber pilot who took part in that. From their point of view, it was one of those raids where pretty much everything went right, including the fact that there was very limited defence. And, of course, the attack was a two-day attack. Let us not exclude the Americans. Had there been a raid on Meissen... People would have complained about the bombing of a porcelain factory 
when in fact during the war the Meissen factories were producing radar equipment. Could that be called economic intelligence? <laughs> Hi, it's uh, Andrew Stewart here of Crazy Officers. Greetings. Club. Greetings, yes. I wondered on some of the stuff that you sent me, there is a minute of a BMP meeting right at the very beginning in which the RAF um, liaison officer handwrites on the bottom of the um, minute, do not include the RAF in future distribution. So these were the intelligence assessments of US Air Force raids and post-intelligence assessments and the RAF liaison officer specifically said, do not include me in future documents. And therefore, that would suggest to me that a means whereby they would have got to um, know about Ultra um, and how it impinged on their operations by making that comment, he effectively outed himself and they didn't have access to the type of information that they might otherwise have had. And therefore, they, if they didn't know about it, obviously they didn't know to ask for it. Could I come back um, only to the material that you and I have sort of exchanged? I have a feeling that the information from the, primarily from the Combined Operational Planning Committee, if that was the selection that you were speaking of, I believe that the the bomber command attitude to that was that they didn't wish to see any further of those plans because they didn't relate to the sort of operations that bomber command was making. But I don't specifically remember the comment about the RAF liaison officer. He may have been perhaps, you know, an intermediary in the communication between Pine Tree and High Wycombe. But I do specifically remember that Bomber Command... But I also thought it was on the bottom of BMP report as well. But I need to... I, I don't specifically recall that, but I clearly cannot sort of deny it. Thank you. I think we probably need to wrap up because one or two people are having to go for trains. John, the strategic bombing is a controversial sir. Um, subject, but this evening you've taken us through many aspects of it that I certainly didn't know anything about, and I think many of us from the Aeronautical Society side will have learned a huge amount. Um, thank you so much for showing us that history is Understanding history needs digging in, finding details, finding, trying to sort out truth from stories and gossip and whatever, and this, how many factors influence what happens in the end. It's been an absolutely fascinating evening. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been a wonderful... <laughs> Thank you.